So our reading in John chapter 9, beginning of verse 1, says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. If you look back, like say in the Old Testament and stuff, you don't find very many healings. In fact, the incidences would be less than 10 healings in the Old Testament. Now, some of those were healings of a lot of people in one event, but only one occasion. You know, healing is actually a very rare thing. An abundance of healing happens really in the life of Christ and uh, some in the life of His disciples or His uh, apostles uh, following Him. And so you, you look back over it and you say, well, why? There's a specific reason, right? There's a reason that healings like that aren't every day throughout time and that they are condensed right there into a lot of them. And that's because they were evidence. They were the, John calls them signs, that Christ is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world. And so that's what's happening here again as John is once again giving us another sign. He's given us eight signs in the Gospel of John to point out the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that through believing in Him, you can have eternal life. That's the main point John tells us of his book, and that's the main point of this and every other sign recorded in his gospel. Well, as we look at it today, it is significant, though, that what we're looking at is the Lord as he opens the eyes of the blind. The first thing we want to look at is the situation. You have an amazing situation. The guy is born blind, so it's a congenital problem. From birth, he's had this condition where he has never been able to see. And so Jesus takes the spit and he makes mud out of it and he puts it on the guy's eyes and then he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the guy goes and washes in the pool of Siloam and he comes back, he's able to see. You see, what it required really was a step of faith, wasn't it? As Jesus tells him, he says, go and do this and then you'll be healed. So when we look at the situation, you've got a guy that's been blind all the way from his birth. Now he was sitting uh, outside the temple. This, this ties in with Jesus. Remember Jesus at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's made a couple amazing proclamations there. He has said, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and I will give him that living water. He has said, I am the light of the world at their big candle lighting festival that they had. And so Jesus is taking all the elements of tabernacles and pointing them to Himself. And then it kind of comes to a, a head right at the end of chapter 7. And it says that they were going to stone Him. They wanted to put Him to death for claiming to be God. At the end of chapter 8, excuse me. And He escapes. And as He comes out of the temple, He looks and He sees this guy that's blind. And even on the run for His life, He stops. Now the guy's positioned Himself in a great place. He's outside the temple. What better place to be? As people come in to worship, what kind of people are you going to run into? You're going to run into people that are generous kind of people. People that have a heart of compassion. There are also people that are thinking about different values like that as they're worshiping as they're worshiping God. In fact, a part of the Jewish worship was the giving of alms, helping the poor. 
Not only that, it's a, it's a place where you're going to get a lot of people coming through. And especially with the Feast of Tabernacles where people are coming from all over the place to come and worship God during this big holiday time. And so he's going to see a lot of people. And Jesus, even though he's getting out of there so they don't put him to death at this time, stops to heal this person. Now, not only do we see want to look at the situation, but let's also look at the sign. Some of them say, you know what, he's a sinner because he's healed a guy on the Sabbath. He shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath. These miracles are what prove that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath and He can do it if He wants to. In chapter 9, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. It says, but others said, how can a man who is a mere sinner do such signs? Uh, there was a division among them. This is an amazing sign to heal somebody that was blind from birth. Later on, they're going to ask the guy about what happened to him. He said, we know that from the history of the world, nobody's ever healed anybody that was born blind. And yet, he opened my eyes. And that's what, as we look at this, as we look at this sign, that's what it is, is a demonstration of who Christ is. Those people were divided because you have the obstinate absolutely against Christ no matter what happens, obviously. Because even when this totally amazing thing, this miraculous thing happens, they will not buy into it. We saw it before back in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. It says there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and it is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? When we get to John chapter 11 and Jesus goes to Lazarus, and Lazarus has been dead for four days at this time when Jesus comes and Jesus is going to raise him from the dead, but nobody else knows that yet except He's told His disciples. When He gets there, in John chapter 11, verse 37, it says, "...but some of them said, could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying?" This is about oh, six months almost before the raising of Lazarus from the dead. At the time of the raising of Lazarus, they still remember this miracle and they say, you know what? If he could give sight to the guy that never saw, the guy that was born blind, then couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? Couldn't he have saved his life? Well, well, lo and behold, they're really in for something because moments after that, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so that ought to answer their question for him. Yes, absolutely he could. But you know what? He purposely let Lazarus die so that he could raise him again from the dead. This man is born blind so that Jesus can give him sight. That's the sign. Now, the sign should have triggered a lot of things for these people because when you look back at the Old Testament, there's, there's many places where it talks about when the Messiah would come, things that He would do. Psalm chapter 146, verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of, the, of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. In Isaiah 35, in verses 4-6, through it says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah chapter 42 and verses 6 through 8. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, 
Those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Repeatedly in the prophets, when the Messiah would come, one of the things that he would do, one of the miraculous signs that he would perform, is bringing sight to the blind. You know, and that's why when we get to like Matthew chapter 11, and John the Baptist is in prison, and he's waiting. He's kind of, uh, I think you get the idea that he's expecting Christ's ministry to be rolling a little stronger by this point, and it's not yet. And so he sends his disciples to go to Jesus and say, are you the guy or do we look for somebody else? And this is the answer that Jesus gives them. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. They see exactly what the Old Testament called for. Exactly what the Old Testament predicted. That when the Messiah comes, He's going to cause the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the lame to walk. He's going to raise the people from the dead. and He's going to perform all of these signs. It's a sign that should have pointed them to the Messiah. Pointed them. Helped them to realize that this is the Christ. So the sign is significant just in what it is. That this is something that nobody else has ever done. This is an amazing miracle. A creative miracle. But it's also astounding in the fact that it points back to the predictions of when the Messiah would come and and demonstrates who He is. Well, along with the sign, as we continue to read through the story, then the next thing that we come across is a misconception. And we see it first in the question of the apostles. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There was a common belief at the time that if you have an ailment, illness, blindness, that it's because of some sin, some particular sin in your life. And the disciples seemed to be sucked into that a little bit. And they asked, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Now, he was born blind, so you got to kind of say, well, what, what do you mean him? Because... He was born that way, so it would have had to been before his birth. But there were some Jewish people that were influenced by the Hellenistic culture around him, right? The Hellenistic or the Greek culture that was around them. In their philosophy, they believed that there was a pre-existence of the soul. That before you were conceived in the womb, that your soul actually existed kind of somewhere else. It's not a true teaching, not a biblical teaching, but in Greek culture, that's what some thought. And so the most commentators think that some of the Jewish people were impacted by that and thought that somehow in their soul or spirit they could sin actually before birth. Uh, it's not, not the case. But they were impacted by that. We also see that the Pharisees must have held a similar position because when we get up to verse 34, when the blind man tells them something they don't really want to hear, they answered him, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So they're either attributing the sin either to be his or to his parents. Whose fault is this? Is it his fault? His parents' fault? Well, neither. They're looking at this whole thing wrong. Uh, We see the friends of Job in Scripture. We see the friends of Job offer a similar kind of a perspective. As Job was suffering and in agony, it says, remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. I don't know where these guys live, but in the world I live in, 
I see people that suffer that are good people. And at the same time, you can find people that are arrogant and thumb their nose at God that live long, healthy lives. It just doesn't work that way. Job's counselors, Job was right. He said, you guys are miserable counselors indeed. Job chapter 42, God tells them the same thing. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You know, Jesus would correct this kind of thinking at another time. It says in Luke chapter 13, the first five verses, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you that, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, they came up and they're sharing with him the news of these people that were slaughtered. And Jesus says, you think that because that happened to them, That was a judgment of God. They were just so much worse people than you or anybody else. And then Jesus brings up one. He says, or those poor people that died when the tower fell, you think that those they really died because they were worse than you? We actually see it in our society sometimes. Some catastrophe happens and people are quick to jump out there and say God's judging those people for this or that. Jesus says no. He says, well, rather, unless you repent, you also likewise will perish. Now, when we think about it then, what about this thing with illness? What is the proper biblical perspective on that? Well, the first thing that we'd have to recognize is that, you know what, in one sense, all suffering comes from sin. Not necessarily specific sin. The reason that we have suffering and illness and sickness and death and what we call birth defects, the reason we have that kind of stuff is because we live in a sin-cursed world because we're under the curse of sin, because Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to, and they brought sin into our experience. And sin destroys. And so in one sense, all suffering is the result of sin in general. Some suffering is a result of sin in particular. We do find instances, John chapter 5, verse 14, we saw that when Jesus healed the guy, the, the lame guy that was by the pool, Jesus said to him afterwards, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus recognizes the prospect of the possibility of something happening negatively in our life because of our own sin. God can do that if He so chooses to, but it does not appear to be the regular pattern of things. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he was writing to a church that was totally abusing the Lord's Supper and turning it into a horrible display of selfishness. And the Apostle Paul would say to them, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died even because of this. So so sometimes God works in people's lives through hardships and suffering because of specific sin in their life. But it's not the norm. In fact, we can say this clearly based on what Jesus is teaching us here is that even if that is the case, that God does do that, you don't know when it's happening. The disciples thought they knew. All right, who sinned? One of these people sinned. Either this guy or his parents. Jesus said, no, neither of them. This has nothing to do with either of their sin. They may have been thinking even just of some natural consequences. In fact, when you look back at the societies in that day, there was more blindness back then because they didn't have all the technologies that we have dealing with illnesses and things like that. And some of them from sinful behaviors. For example, sexually transmitted diseases. 
Gonorrhea is, is one example. If a woman has that and she gives birth to a child in delivery, that child can catch that and can lose his eyesight because of that. And so they may have even been pointing in that direction. Was it because of something like this? Because you know what? The fact of the matter is, is none of us are an island to ourselves. And so our sin does affect other people. As parents and grandparents, our sins affect the other generations of our family. They make a negative impact. And so there are times when the sins of the parents, the child's going to pay a bit of the price for that just because of natural consequences. The parent doesn't hold up their responsibility in parenting. The child suffers. In fact, one source said that possibly as high as 90% of blind cases in the more ancient world may have been attributed to that kind of diseases. And so, you know, they may have been pointing in a more practical sense. I think they're thinking more of a, more of a theological sense that they're saying is God, did God put this in them because of the parent's sin or did God make this because of his own sin? Jesus just settles the misconception. He says, look, it, it, didn't, have, it didn't have to do with either of them. What does it have to do with? It has to do with the work of God. Why was this person born blind? So that the work of God could be displayed in his life. Verse 3, it said, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And with that, Jesus points out a, a motivation. He says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. We've got to work the works of God while it's day. It, it reminds me of John chapter 12. He's going to say something similar. He's going to say, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so obviously the light is Jesus and the darkness is when He departs off the scene and it's going to be a dark time until the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so the disciples are just going to kind of be waiting. They're not going to be working. They're going to be waiting for the promise of the Spirit at that time. But Jesus says, right now it's daylight. Right now it's time to work. That's what we do. It's so much easier to work in the daylight. And what is His work? Well, at this moment it's bringing sight to the blind you know all those things that we experience like that are an opportunity for God to work I've thought about this kind of thing quite a bit over the last several years this guy was born blind he's over 40 years old he was born blind for a purpose so that the works of God could be displayed in him this guy endured 40 years of blindness for this day Is it worth it? Is a demonstration of the glory of God worth you experiencing 40 years of blindness? You going through hardships? Absolutely. You know, our purpose in this world is to bring honor and glory to God. It needs to be a demonstration of the glory of God. And you know, these things like this guy's blindness and stuff, they don't don't catch God by accident. In fact, in, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We call those birth defects or accidents, if you lose it later. Tragedies. God calls them purposeful. He says, I make those. Because that gives some insight into the way that we're supposed to glorify Him. 
Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Even with that, he was fashioned by God for a purpose, to bring glory to God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10 through 10, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. So you get the impression he wasn't too thrilled about this thorn. To harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So the Apostle Paul's response, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. John Piper, in his treatment of this passage that we're looking at in John, he's looked at verse 3 and he said, You know what? I don't see anything in verse 3 that said that God had to heal the blindness, had to give him sight in order for God to demonstrate His work in his life. The point that he was making is that, look, in this particular instance, what was it going to mean? It was going to mean healing. But you know what? In any illness or sickness, in any handicap, in any weakness or suffering that we can go through, every one of those is an opportunity to glorify God in a certain way. You know, when Jesus told Peter what kind of death he was going to die, that he was going to be spread out like Jesus would be on a cross, Peter's first response was, what about John? (laughs) But Jesus basically tells him, you don't worry about John. Stay in your own lane. You have your path. He has his own. But you know what it says? It says Jesus told him this signifying what kind of death he would glorify God in. The Peter, when he faced the death on the cross, so John in his faithfulness in providing the revelation and his faithfulness for standing for Christ, he glorified God all the way up until he died naturally and glorified God in that death as well. The Apostle Paul would say, whether I live or die, I want to bring glory to God in whatever I'm doing. You see, the disciples ask a question. Whose fault is this? Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not whose fault. It's whose opportunity. This is an opportunity to display the glory of God in this person's life. In fact, this person was born blind and lived blind for 40 years to have this magnificent demonstration of the glory of God. And you know what? That guy's been able to see ever since. And how many people, millions upon millions of people, down through the years have seen the glory of Christ because of this person's experience of blindness for 40 years and the subsequent healing that came with it. And so we see the motivation. Jesus invites the disciples. He says, this is an opportunity. We're to be doing the work of God in this. We need to get at it while it's daylight. We need to not waste our time. Up to this point, Jesus said, my Father is working and I am working. Now He invites the disciples into it and He says, while it is day, we, not just I, we must work the works of God. In every situation we find ourselves in, we have the opportunity to demonstrate God's work in our life. And that's what we need to be motivated to do. Well, lastly, lastly, there's the symbolism. Because the blindness that He's healing this person of is a symbol. It is a true event that's happening there. But it also speaks of a greater blindness. 
And we find that toward the end of the passage in John chapter 9, verses 35 and 38. We, we first see a spiritual blindness that the, the same individual uh, has overcome. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Obviously didn't recognize his voice. He hadn't seen him yet because he couldn't see before. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This guy's received his sight in two different ways today. That day he received his sight, first of all, by Jesus Christ restoring his physical sight. But then Jesus also cleared away his spiritual blindness. And he helped him see to believe in Christ. Well, Jesus then points out that that's kind of what this is all about. In verses 39 through 41, it says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say we see, and so your guilt remains. And so you see the point that Jesus is making is his healing that guy's eyesight is also a picture of what He came to do in restoring sight to the blind. There's a blindness that people have because of sin that we're born into. In that sense, we're all blind from birth until Christ opens our eyes and we see and we believe. It's kind of interesting that Jesus sends Him to the Pool of Siloam. Because the Pool of Siloam dates all the way back to Hezekiah's days. King Hezekiah was a good king. And the Assyrians threatened to come marching in. And Hezekiah was a little worried about that, but he wasn't going to give in. He was going to hold firm and trust in the Lord. And so he trusted God to protect him. And he said, you know what? we got these springs around the temple area, around the city, outside the city that have water. When our enemy shows up, why should they have fresh water? So they started blocking up all the springs that they could. And one of the things that they did in that process is they took the, the spring of Gihon. Remember the priest would go out to the Gihon Spring and, and fill the pitcher and then bring it in singing about salvation during this feast? Well, what they did was they, they dug a tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel, tunnel they call it. They dug a tunnel from the spring at Gihon into, underneath the walls of the city and brought it into the city and created the Pool of Siloam. And so then while the, the, if they were trapped inside the city walls with their enemy on the outside, their enemy would not have the fresh water the, in the springs that they had blocked up, and they would have fresh water from the spring that would come into the pool of Siloam. But when you look at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, it says, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, it's talking about the same exact thing, that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Remaliah. Now, reason is the king of Assyria, and Remaliah was the son of the king of Samaria. And those two kings were coming together and going to come against Judah. What God's doing here in this passage is He tells them, you're not doing like Hezekiah. You're not trusting in Me, drinking of the pool of Siloam within the city gates. You fear them more than you do Me, and so you're, you're trying to make a deal with them. And God looks at it as a rejection. And notice what He says, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason in the son of Remaliah. And God saw it as a betrayal, but... So the point is, Jesus tells him to go wash in that pool. Because what's happening? The same thing. <laughs> John chapter 1, verse 11, all over again. Just as we pointed out a couple other times, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. 
Just like when the Jews back in their day, back in the time that Isaiah wrote to them and said, you've rejected the water of Shiloh, the water that God preserved you on before, and you have turned instead to get help from these foreign kings and forsaken God in that way. He's saying, look, Jesus is the true Shiloh. The word translated means sent because they sent the water from the spring of Gihon into the city walls. And Jesus is the sent one, one, the Messiah that would come. And what are they doing? They're rejecting Him, but not this guy. This guy believes. They're continuing along the same path that Jesus had pointed out in John chapter 3 and verse 19. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Israel had a long history of that. Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry in chapter 6 pointed out that they'd be forever listening and never hearing. They have eyes to see, but they never see. There's a huge symbolism here. Jesus came and the Old Testament said that when He came, He would accomplish certain works. One of them was to bring sight to the blind. He did that. But that also was a symbol of a greater blindness that engulfed the nation of Israel. And within that blindness, Jesus was giving spiritual sight to the blind just like He also did to this man. The Bible tells us that we are blinded by Satan until Christ opens our eyes until we finally see the reality of who He is and we come to believe.